0: For those of you who don't know me, I'm Keith Corver, and I proudly bear the label of B Team. <laughs> do you remember the games when the B Team would get in? they just start flinging the ball up in the whole bed. they want to score. That, that's all I want to do today is score. Let's, let's just do that. We're continuing our series with uh, Humbled in the Turning. Last week, talk, Phil talked about facing temptation, and today, I want to talk about this idea of being blinded by pride. Um, you'll notice in the bulletin, there's a particular text that was chosen that I was to preach on, but Tim Harum and I got together, and, and nothing was landing for either of us regarding the text. And so the great thing about getting older, when you don't worry about what people think about you so much, is you just grab a hold of the wheel and choose a different text. You find one that works for you. So that's what I'm going to do today, and that's what Tim is doing as well in the auditorium. So we're going to look in-depth at the life of Joseph in a little bit. Um, Pride-filled peacock. How many people in this room are pride-filled peacocks like I can be? And those whose hands didn't go up are lying. (laughs) Tim Harum and I, we were laughing at lunch on Wednesday the way Tom Vanderwell dispersed the topics. The topics landed perfectly for each person. It was kind of funny to see actually. So I'm a professional at Pride and I'm being humbled in the turning. And uh, maybe you are too. And God humbles us because he loves us so much because God doesn't tolerate pride. It's not going to happen. Um, I'm looking at uh, a couple comments that Bobby Gross made in, in one of the texts that we're using for the series is that we're so easily blinded by pride and he's got a checklist. You'll know if you're prideful if kind of thing. So we hold back from confessing our sins and we resist the work of repentance. Check. We subtly interpret our gifts and blessings as signs of superiority over others. Check. We readily readily form judgments of others and then downplay our own weaknesses. Check, check. If we've been Christians for a long while, we grow overly confident in our understanding and we are less open to instruction. Check. It's often true for my own life. I think Proverbs 16, 18 is like this universal law that God is set in motion, and it goes like this. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. How often do we see someone being pride-filled or ourselves setting themselves up for a great fall? I'm in seventh grade. <clears throat> My dad had a great quote he gave me. So if you don't remember anything from this sermon, you need to remember this quote. It's very easy to remember. He said, Keith, remember this. The whale that comes up and blows the hardest and the longest is always the first to get harpooned. (laughs) That's the message right there. The whale that comes up and blows the longest and the hardest is always the first one to get harpooned. Pride, how about a couple warm-up stories here for us? Um, Funny story first, I used to play a lot of racquetball and Dr. Al Hibbert, professor of math and computer science, is a great racquetball player and Al wins Iowa games and all this sort of thing, and you know when you play somebody who's better than you, you play up, you play better. And so for Al, for years, it was like I would almost win and then uh, back down and I would lose. And uh, so I'd come home after having one of those kind of days and my wife would be at the kitchen counter, she'd be getting dishes ready or whatever, getting supper ready, cleaning dishes, and I would walk in the door and she'd say, you lost, didn't you? I said, how can you tell? She says, you have such nasty energy when you have lost. I can feel it when you walk in the room. Well, one day I played Al. I beat him. So we walked out of the racquetball courts at Central College, and I said, Al, what is up? I beat you today. I have never beat you. He said, Keith, just prior to you coming here, a female student showed up, just heard that I won the Iowa games and told me I was the greatest thing since sliced bread that ever walked on the racquetball court. And he says, you were God's humbling stick for me today. I said, Al, I said, I want you to get more pride filled because I want to win more. (laughs) Years ago, I took a group of high school students to Mexico. And after we'd built a home, this is not Pella kids, it was Des Moines kids. We were in one of the stores on Revolution Boulevard, one of the trinket shops. Every other store is a trinket shop, and then every other store from that is like a uh, pharmacy with all kinds of illegal drugs that Americans come over the border to buy. So we were leaving one store, and I was kind of in the back of the store shepherding all the students out, and lo and behold, two of the shopkeepers made a comment, and they said, in no uncertain terms, that we American, we gringos, were some of the most arrogant people that ever walked the planet. We made them sick kind of thing. And then I walked by them. They didn't see me. And then they got real quiet, Oh, we're sorry, sir. We're sorry, sir. I said, no. I said, you told the truth. (laughs) I walked out. It's true. We are some of the most pride-filled peacocks on the planet as Americans, and even as American Christians. Another story, fun story. I went to Hope College 1977 through 1979, and I have never seen anything like this before in my life. I've never seen a group of losers so coagulated in one place as one of the halls at Hope College. It was Durfee Hall. Every loser, every guy who couldn't figure out his way in life was there. I mean, it was incredible. I couldn't believe how the registrar of Hope College figured out how to get all these guys together. By the way, that was my dorm for two years. (laughs) <laughs> Dur- Dur- Durfee Hall was a fun place. We had a deal there where it used to be a girls dorm, and so there was no urinals in the bathrooms, just stools. But it was an old boiler system, so if you flushed a toilet, you had to scream and yell at anybody who was in the shower, because you could pull the, pull the uh, cold water, or the hot water out of the system, cold water out of the system, and accelerate hot water. So I, I 1977, 1978, the, the Yankees, I almost said it, the darn Yankees, beat the Dodgers twice in the World Series. So I lost 50 bucks both years, 25 bucks each year to two guys from New York City who were super pride-filled peacocks. They were so pride-filled, it was incredible. Reggie Jackson, and they did the Dodgers in seven both years, and they never let me live it down. So I would always wait till those guys were in the shower, and I would not call out flush. <laughs> Boom, I'd hit the thing, and I'd run out, and you'd hear them just scream. But I want you to know that I did it completely in Christian love. <laughs> Because they needed to be sanctified, babe. And I wanted them to have some heat. Durfee Hall. It's true. We were, we were an interesting bunch. There was a gal uh, my freshman year. Her name was Kathy. And she was absolutely beautiful physically. And she was highly intelligent, highly articulate, and she dressed to the nines. The problem was she would never give the Durfee guys time of day. So we had a deli lunch uh, buffet every day to kind of offshoot or offload some of the... Uh, What's the main cafeteria? Phelps? Phelps. Phelps, To uh, offload some of the Phelps traffic. And lo and behold, she would come in and she would blow off all the Durfee guys. Well, Durfee guys had enough of that. We're we're getting tired of being treated like second-class citizens. Now, I wasn't there, so I'm claiming innocence. that I did not participate in this. But I come back from class one day and a bunch of guys yell, Corver, get over here. You're You're gonna see something incredible. So I come to the main gathering area outside of the deli. And lo and behold, they tell me there's two guys on the floors above the door where you get in the side entrance for the deli, that they have two five-gallon buckets of water. And they're waiting for Kathy to come. The whole dorm was in the lobby watching this thing go down. So I'm sitting here, and she opens the door, and 10 gallons of water come down on her. She's just soaked, and she's wearing a white cotton dress. She looks like a drenched rat, and she's in all of her glory. In, in great anger and angst, she runs away, screaming and yelling. And the whole bit—we don't see Kathy for a week. She comes back a week later, and she's wearing a Levi's 501 jeans, three jeans, and she's—that's 50C3, forget it, <laughs> 501 jeans. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a nonprofit. White T-shirt and tennis shoes, and she walks into the lobby, and she says, "I'm calling a meeting for Durfee Hall." So all 70 guys come down from Durfee Hall. And Kathy says, I'm calling a meeting. I'm calling a truce right now. She said, I am really sorry for my arrogant attitude toward you guys. Will you forgive me? And the guy says, of course we will. We love you. We want you to be our mascot. She said, I am. So Kathy became the queen mascot for Durfee Hall. Pride. Where did it all come from? Where did it all come from? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel 28. And we're going to see here where this whole mess started. It started with Lucifer, who was an incredibly beautiful angel created by the Lord. If you ever want to read an incredible book on how the Mesopotamian writers of the Old Testament, they originally intended the writings to be read, read Michael Heiser's book called The Unseen Realm. Uh, we will read our Bible and we'll hear about Satan the serpent in the garden, Genesis 3, and we think a snake. It's not what's being conveyed there. The serpent in ancient Mesopotamian mythology was a beautiful creature. It was just uh, typed type that way in, in writing. Uh, Lucifer was so beautiful, it was incredible. And we're going to see a picture of, here of him in Scripture and then what happened to him. And then we'll go from there for the rest of the text. So Ezekiel 28. I want to talk about prophecy for just a quick second here. The biblical writers had different prophetic targets. And the Holy Spirit can take any piece of scripture anytime he wants and make it prophetic for a particular age. So in Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel's targeting a king in particular who's a contemporary. But the Holy Spirit's taking the text and using Ezekiel's words to cue us into what was actually happening in the heavenlies with Lucifer. And we're going to see at the end of this text, there's a prophecy yet unfulfilled, that pride will literally get you toasted. Pride will burn you in the end. And you're going to see it from the text here. So let's start with the word of the Lord from Ezekiel 28, and let's look at verse 12b. So you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, Sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Critical thing. He was created. We've been created. How can you be proud of anything that was given to you? That's where we're going here today. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. He was to guard the praises around the throne of God to keep everything Perfect, and he was gorgeous. You were on the holy mount of God and you walked among the fiery stones. That's typology there for other high angelic beings, fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you, and through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and I made you a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you've desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and you will be no more. That's a prophetic picture of what in fact is going to happen to Lucifer, who started the whole, the whole rebellion against God because of his pride-filled disposition of himself. My daughter Kelly really liked Beauty and the Beast, that, uh, that uh, Disney show back in the 1990s. Each one of our kids had a particular video they liked to watch, and it's kind of like Gaston walking down, and he looks in the mirror, and he winks, aren't I cool? That's Lucifer. And then you'll read in Isaiah 14 that he wants to actually kick God off the throne. He actually wants to put together a mutiny to kick God off the throne. And God gives him the boot and says, sorry, there's only one of me. And here's the point. God will not allow for pride, period, in his kingdom. There will be no pride. I had a really interesting thing happen to me this week. It's always amazing to me the way the Holy Spirit will give you resources just in time kind of thing. I had a woman who emailed me from my, she used to attend my church in Des Moines back in the 1990s. She was a baby Christian at the time. She knew nothing about the Bible. She wound up coming to our little church and she said, Keith, I had no idea what you were talking about. I had no idea how to read the Bible or glean any meaning from it. But in 1996, she said, I was transported to heaven, just like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. So she wound up coming here. She said, the Holy Spirit told me twice, I need to come find you. And she says, I'm not uh, trying to snoop dog here or anything like that. But I've tried to share this story with people, and people keep blowing me off like it was a dream. She said, it was not a dream. What's interesting is everything I'm going to share with you that she shared with me is what the Apostle Paul saw in 2 Corinthians 12. And so with trepidation, she shared, and I said to her, her first name is Donna." I said, please share with me what you saw, what you experienced, because I believe you. I believe it. So I'll clean up a little bit what she said, but her story is incredible. And the point is this. There's no pride in heaven. None. All there is is humility. All there is is Love. All there is is light and acceptance by all who are there. And even the memory of your past gets changed and transformed to be seen in a new light in Christ. So I want to share with you what she shared with me. So she was laying on her bed, living in the Greenfield Township with her husband and two children. One night, she said, I left my body. I could feel it being released. My spirit uh, being let go and the feeling of exhaustion being released. The feeling of my heart was not having to work so hard to pump the blood through my body. That exhaustion lifted as I was transported through darkness. Unbelievable, the feeling of unconditional love as she gathered outside of Jerusalem. She stayed in the rural part outside the city. She was not allowed to go in. She had a gathering of family and friends who met her and she knew all of them because she was receiving telepathically. She was not receiving verbally. So that's Hebrews 12. Now we're surrounded by a great congregation of people of faith. She said, the humbleness I felt. Now this lady did not know any scripture when she wrote this back in 1996. She says, it's like the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Everybody was humble. The truth opened up and everyone will see it. We all know that we are not worthy but we feel Jesus' greatness. How people know they are totally equal. There were no labels. There was no hierarchy. There was no time, total peace. It was like living in the present moment only. It was the feeling of being finally home. It's like I left and I finally came home, unlike life here on earth. The feeling of individualism, that I didn't need anyone else to feel whole. I was whole and complete all by myself. I was the real me. Total acceptance. Here on earth we need family and friends acceptance so we have to act in a certain way to seek approval. She said, I saw my funeral. I looked back at the earth through the roof of the mortuary and I saw my family's grief and I wanted to talk to all of them and tell them not to grieve. It's incredible here in God's presence. My life was totally opened up to me. My book of life was laid out in front of me so I could see it. It was shown to me by an angel. I laid it out. It was laid out on a table before me It played out like a real-life, actual video clip. She was only 28 at the time, and so she said she had a very short movie. Feelings of great sorrow for the things I had done that were wrong in my life, and the things I hadn't done. The way I made others feel. She was finally getting tuned with how she was projecting on others and impacting other people. She said, my selfishness and my pride, I could see it projecting on people and how I hurt them. She said, this was the way that I was feeling and no one else was making me feel this way. They were all so loving. She said, I could see the fog of deception that we live with here on earth. All these false beliefs were revealed to me, how society and past generations falsely shape us, how wrong it all is. In fact, many of our traditions, things that we follow from our ancestors are all wrong and they create bondage. Speaking to others without words, mind transference or telepathy, all knowing nothing was hidden, it was all out in the open. There was tremendous forgiveness from me to anyone who had wronged me. She said, murder, rape, etc., do not carry the same weight there. It is all forgivable. I had a woman come up to me after the first service, and she said, you know what the greatest humility is? Forgiveness. It is the greatest humility that God has given us in Jesus and he wants us to give to others. He says, the way we see things here on earth is way different from the way you see things in heaven. The way I looked at judging others took on a whole new perspective on why I should not do that because I don't understand the complexities of their lives and only God can untangle their mess as he does mine. The feeling of how I put such value on things here on earth was wrong. Materialism, the American dream, house, job, car, it all meant nothing, nothing at all. One of the biggest takeaways for me was that relationships are all that matter. The people in your life, you only get one chance here, and when you leave, it's all set for eternity, and there is no chance to come back and to change anything. She felt very close to an angel who was guiding her. She said, this angel knew everything about me and only cared about the best for me, and was totally accepting. There were other angels as well. Her body had a sense of floating and hovering. It was a sensation of moving and gliding around heaven, and I was able to answer that question, actually. Until we receive resurrection bodies, when we go to paradise, we'll be in spirit form, and we'll be moving and floating like that and communicating the way she's explaining until we get bodies to communicate and to feel differently. She said, I was hovering over this beautiful valley of flowers outside the great city with green grass, and the the peacefulness of it was incredible. She said, the colors were like none I have ever seen before. None of the colors matched the color spectrum we see here on earth. It's greater Those that gathered around me and met me initially, they were talking to me telepathically, asked me if I wanted to go back or if I wanted to stay. And I remember telling them that I wanted to stay. I wanted to leave my family. They would all be fine. They would all be okay. And then she heard a masculine, booming voice, and it was God the Father. It was an authoritative, firm voice, abruptly rumbled and rolled across the heaven above, telling me I had to go back that I was not finished and that I had more to do. If you read the Psalms, you read Job, you read the gospel messages, God's voice rolls like rolling thunder and splits all the trees of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. Jesus heard the Father's voice, but everybody else interpreted it to be thunder. She heard rolling thunder, God saying, go back, boom, boom. When I came back a day or so later and remembered the feeling of time travel, an actual feeling of movement of high speed was still with her. She was plopped back into her body, and then urgency came to her that I do not have much time. You do not have much time. We have a lot of things that we need to change in our lives. Her fear of dying and death left her, and she can't wait to go back. Point, there is no pride in heaven. There's only humility. There is only love. There's only total self-acceptance. There's total other acceptance and total acceptance of the light and love that God wants to give us through Jesus. Now what I'd like to do for the rest of our time together is I want to take us into a specific text. So if you turn to Genesis 37, I want to roll through the story of Joseph and many people miss what's happening here even scholars, I'm amazed when I read books, and I'm I'm just crediting the Holy Spirit for showing this to me, because I'm not smart enough to know this. The story of Joseph is the story of Joseph and Judah. Would you say Judah? Joseph and Judah are two pride-filled peacocks who get set against each other in sibling rivalry, and what God is gonna wind up doing is God is going to move them out of pride through a humiliation process And finally, when they hit a place of humility, he's gonna exalt both of them. So I'm looking here, yeah. So here's my first point. If if we are blinded by pride, the Lord in love will have to break us of it so that we can have fellowship with him and be useful in building his kingdom. So I'm in Genesis 37. I'm only gonna read verses one through 11, but then I'm gonna take you through the story all the way through Genesis 50 to show you the high points of what's going on here how both Joseph and Judah are paralleling one another. And there's a saying out there that says this, that pride is the greatest distance between two people. And God is taking each of them on a path because they will not choose humility to be broken to humility. So the question for us today is, is will you choose humility this Lent, or do you have to be taken into humility through brokenness? Let's hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Genesis 37, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Now Joseph was a young man of 17 and he was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So Joseph is a tattletale. Joseph, a punk. He's 17 years old. Now don't go go there now, but back in Genesis 30, (laughs) You see that Jacob has four wives. He married Leah and Rachel, who were sisters, and then he, in a sense, wifed two concubines. He didn't necessarily marry them because they were having fertility wars in this family to see who could raise the largest clan. Rachel, who was Joseph's mom, could not have children. Hilarious story. They're out in the fields, and Reuben, Leah's oldest, finds a mandrake plant. If you see a mandrake plant, it looks like it's two ovaries, fallopian tubes down to a uterus. It's got that shape. I dare you to Google it today. Some of you are going to go check it out right now on your phone. Reuben brings that back, and he wants to give it to Leah. Well, Rachel sees that he's got that and says, hey, let me have that mandrake, because it was thought to be a fertility-type herb or root to help her with reproduction. Well, lo and behold, Leah says, okay, I'll allow that Reuben to give you that mandrake if indeed you let me sleep with Jacob. So Rachel is the head hen of the roost over Leah and the two concubines. She had the ability to determine who would have conjugal rights with Jacob. So Rachel had power. So Joseph is finally born in Rachel's old age and Jacob being a silly father because Rachel was his favorite wife gave him a wonderful coat. The coat was not just a coat of many colors. The coat was the coat of authority. And this is what many people miss. Since Rachel was the head of the hen house, Joseph, in some senses of the word, could be considered the firstborn who was in fact going to inherit a double share. It's so all the brothers are looking at this going, hey, this guy's number 11, but he's being shown all the favoritism. What the heck is going on here? So they don't like him, and he's a braggart. So now we see Joseph has a couple dreams, and Joseph doesn't help the cause. So here we are in verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told to his brothers, they hated him all the more. It was an egotistical dream. See it? He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves were gathering around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you, intend for us to, you, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Joseph's got zero emotional intelligence. <laughs> Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down before you, to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Fast forward, to finish this chapter. Joseph is sent by daddy to check on the brothers who are watching the sheep by Shechem Joseph finally finds them at Dothan. Joseph's a tattletale. He's trying to figure out, are they stealing sheep? Are they stealing goats? Are they doing anything on the side? Are they doing something the family business is not sanctioning? So the brothers see him coming. And this is where Reuben kicks in. Reuben sees him coming and says, let's kill that guy. Let's kill him. I've had it with him. His dreams are baloney. His pride stinks. Let's kill him. Reuben talks him out of it and says, "Now let's just throw him in the cistern with every intention of pulling out of the cistern later. Reuben takes a hike to go get lunch or something. Ishmaelite traders come and the brothers, Judah, says, hey, let's not kill this guy. Let's make some coinage on this guy. So they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which is the price of a slave to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites take him to Egypt. And in Egypt, Potiphar buys him. Now, Potiphar, our text says at the end of chapter 37, he was one of Pharaoh's officials. He was the captain of the guard. Potiphar was more than that. Potiphar was the chief executioner for Pharaoh. Now, this gets really interesting in the story later when we hear about Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar. We'll get there in a few minutes. But here's how the Egyptians, ancient Egyptians executed people. If you think a cross is brutal, think of a nice pointed stick, and you get sat on it. Impale. Impale. That's how the Egyptians did business. So Joseph is purchased by Potiphar, who's the chief captain of the guard, and he's the lead executioner for Pharaoh. Go to chapter 38. Here's where it picks up with Judah again. The family's super dysfunctional. Dad shows favoritism. Now dad is in Grand Funk Railroad because Joseph is dead and is not showing any life. So Reuben says, I am out of here. Reuben leaves and he goes and visits with the Canaanites. The Canaanites were the idol worshipers that God was pulling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of and creating covenant with. So Judas says, hey, I'm out of here. I'm going back with the old kinfolk. He winds up marrying a gal. He has three boys. He has Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The oldest one he marries to a gal named Tamar or Tamar. Well, this guy is so wicked that God puts Ur to death. Then, according to those rules back in the day, the brother was supposed to take his sister's wife and have a son through her to keep the brother's name moving in perpetuity. But Onan spilled his seed every time he was with her to not conceive, so God killed him. Well, Judah's getting afraid, going, oh my goodness, this Tamar's bad luck. She's bad news. So I don't want to give my third son to her besides Shelah's really young. So Tamar, you go home to your mom and dad, and when Shelah's old enough, we'll make the connection. Tamar goes, sounds like a plan. Judah's wife dies. Judah is not fulfilling his job as the patriarch of the clan in finding a husband for Tamar. So one day after Judah's wife dies, he's going to shear sheep, and by golly, he sees a prostitute, a shrine prostitute by the side of the road, which was very common back in those days. So there's a Christian rock band out there, and I think it's called, uh, who's the group out of uh, Detroit? Oh, uh, they they sang the song uh, Fire Down Below. What group is that? It's a rock and roll song. Come on. Who knows rock and roll? I'm trying to think of the guy who was out of Detroit. Long story short, was that? Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Thank you. It was just bra- I brain-tooted here. I got it on the first service. So Judas got the fire down below. He sees this lady over here, and he negotiates with her for a time with her. He doesn't know that it's Tamar. Now, this is one of these absolutely brilliant things of scripture that you go, how did this happen? How did she know her cycle was perfect? How did she know he was gonna be there then? Blah, 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 blah. How does this all lay out? Well, Judah lays with her, and she's probably veiled, and she winds up conceiving. But he leaves her his staff, which in essence is his driver's license, and says, I'll send you a goat in payment for this. And she says, great. Well, he sends his buddy, Hiram, to go pay off this prostitute, and she's not there. Now they are the laughing stock of this town because nobody can figure out who did what and everybody knows what Judah did, okay? So Judah's being humiliated. He's being ground down. He finds out three months later that Tamar is pregnant. He says, Bring her out. We have to burn her. We have to kill her because she was doing prostitution. And she sends back his staff and says, Yeah, and here's the man who did it. And here's Judah's response She is more righteous than me. So Judah's getting crushed, absolutely crushed. Joseph's getting crushed. We move on. Let's go to chapter 39, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph turns out to be Midas touch for Potiphar. Everything he touches turns to gold and Potiphar can see it. Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything except for what he wants to eat. Now, Many scholars believe that since Potiphar was the captain of the guard and the chief executioner, that the political prisoner jail was actually on his house compound. So Joseph was already running it from the top. He was running everything. And so Potiphar did not have to worry about a thing. When Mrs. Potiphar sees Joseph and starts making eyes at him, and here's where Joseph had help on two counts. Now this is not in scripture. This is my surmising. Number one, Joseph did not want to dishonor God and the dreams he had. But I also know that Joseph is a man. And I've often wondered how long can a man stand when he's stuck, especially with someone who's got power over him. So I imagine that Joseph prayed a prayer and said, Lord, you got to get me out of here. You got to help me. And God said, I got the perfect plan. I'm gonna have Mrs. Potiphar get really anxious for you. She's gonna take your coat and you're gonna wind up in the jail and there you're gonna be safe. And that's exactly what happened. Joseph got put in the jail and Mrs. Potiphar probably walked by him every day. Huh. You shoulda, coulda. And Joseph's going, no, I'm really glad I'm here because Mr. Potiphar is the chief executioner. Here's why I believe Mr. Potiphar knew that Joseph did not approach Mrs. Potiphar. The text says, and he was really angry. Well, he had to pretend he was angry. We don't know what kind of marriage Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar had. It could have been an open marriage. It could have been a goofy marriage. It could have been anything that was going on in Egypt back in those days. But Joseph was his goose that laid golden eggs, and he wasn't going to lose that. And number two, he might have known his wife was a floozy, and maybe he was too. So Joseph is spared being sat on a stick. Thank you, Lord. Let's keep moving. In verse chapter 40. You notice as Joseph's life is progressing here in chapter chapter 39 verse nine, Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, how could I do such a wicked thing in sin? And then in chapter 40 when the butler and the baker come to have their dreams interpreted to him in prison, In verse eight, he says, then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. You see a shift in Joseph from being egotistical, it's me, you'll bow down to me, I will rule over you, to he's being protected by God, and everything is about God. Everything is about God. Everything is about God. And Judah, on the other hand, is getting crushed too. And he's being wooed Back into a heart of love from his murderous heart. Now, what's interesting in chapter 40 is this Joseph interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker perfectly. The cupbearer is restored to his position, and the baker is hung. He is impaled on a pole. But the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him when he left prison. Here's what was happening to Joseph. So for two years, two more years, Joseph had to continue to wait. How many of you are Dutch like me when you have a tube of toothpaste that you wanna get the very last little squish out of that thing? So what God was doing with Joseph's ego is Joseph frantically was telling the vintner, the wine taster, remember me and tell everybody I'm innocent. Joseph is still lobbying for himself, for his own little ego, his own little plan for his life. And God says, Joseph, We need two more years here in the clink. And so two more years is like standing on that tube of toothpaste to get the last bit of Joseph out of Joseph so that there would only be God. So if you go to chapter 41, Pharaoh has dreams. Verse 16, the vintner, the wine taster, remembers Joseph. He's cleaned up. He comes up to speak to Pharaoh in verse 16. He's asked by Pharaoh, can you interpret dreams? He says, I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And you know the rest of the story. Joseph interprets the dreams correctly. He's named Chancellor, second in power. For seven years, he gathers the grain. He has two sons, Manasseh, which means the Lord makes me forget my misery. And he has Ephraim, his son, which says God has made me fruitful in the land of my misery. And then all of a sudden, two years after the seven years of plenty, the famine is so bad that Joseph's brothers show up and Joseph sees them. And now we see Joseph and Judah coming together. I'm gonna give you the Reader's Digest version here. On the first trip, Benjamin is not with them. Joseph accuses them of being spies. They go home under a cloud. They notice that they have their money in their sacks. After time, they've got to go back to Egypt, but Joseph told them, don't come back unless you bring your younger brother to corroborate your story that you do have a younger brother and that you are not spies. Benjamin winds up coming, and Judah has pledged to Jacob that it is his life for Benjamin's if indeed Benjamin does not come back. The whole narrative between Joseph and Benjamin flips. Finally, when Judah is in front of Joseph and Joseph is going to abscond Benjamin and keep him as a slave, Judah says, I cannot go back to my father and see his gray beard go down to the grave in despair. He lost one son who was ravaged by an animal. I cannot let this other one go. And then Joseph breaks down and he acknowledges himself before his brothers. He sees that Judah's murderous heart has moved toward humility and love for his father and for his brother Benjamin. The transformation occurred for two pride-filled peacocks through a straining process. But the question for all of us today is simply this. Do we have to go through that or can we choose it? It's very interesting. I want you to turn to close the section on Joseph to chapter 49, I wanna show you the final transformation that happened to Judah. So Joseph, he becomes the chancellor of Egypt and Jacob now is dying in chapter 49 and he's issuing a blessing to each one of his sons and he says, Joseph, you're a, a fruitful bow. You're a branch that produces all kinds of fruit to protect and to save and preserve people. Look at what Jacob sees in the transformation of Judah who he knew had a murderous heart, who sold his son into slavery, who defaulted with a Canaanite fertility cult and finally came back to the covenant. Here we have in chapter 49, verse eight, Jacob's final words to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Watch this now. Here's the prophecy of Jesus. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations are his, is his. And he will tether his donkey to a vine, and his colt to the choicest branch, and he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Jacob has seen the transformation of Judah over a 22-year period to being a man of humility with a heart of love. Joseph, from being a pride-filled peacock, as the turning of his plot pride through twenty-two years of imprisonment, slavery, and responsibility to understanding the world is not about him, but it's about him serving the world. Now I'd like you to turn in closing to Philippians two, one through eleven, because here we see the lion of the tribe of Judah. Paul names him in Philippians two, one through eleven. And Jesus chooses humility, he's God. Remember, the point here today is simply this. In the kingdom of God, there will be no pride. There is no room for pride. If you're pride-filled, you're gonna be toast. If you're pride-filled, you're gonna get a harpoon. If you're pride-filled, you're going down to destruction. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, imitating Christ's humility. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made of himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love... 1 Peter 5, 6. Can I have that last text up to close? Peter says this. Next text, please. <clears throat> Next slide. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. How many of you here have seen the latest DVD? I think Tom Hanks did it on... Um, oh, golly. Come on, Keith. I'm getting tired here. No, uh, the, Mr. Rogers. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for your help today. This is always the hardest service, the first one flows, this is like the clunker, sorry. (laughs) But anyway, Chris and I watched Mr. Rogers on Friday night and it was fascinating for me to watch his story. His wife made a comment, he had a really raging temper. Mr. Rogers had a raging temper. How many like Mr. Rogers have a raging temper without Christ? Raise your hand if you do. What's so amazing to me about Mr. Rogers is he actually, when you watch his story, typified all of Kevin's last series on Fruit of the Spirit. The Fruit of the Spirit is love, then you get eight of the things that get named, but he chose to be humble. He chose to speak slowly and see each person. How much self-discipline that takes? Have you ever tried to slow yourself down to really see someone else? Guy was a Presbyterian minister, and he lived it. It's a phenomenal movie. It was really interesting, one of the scenes on the movie, they're in a New York subway, and there's a a reporter named Lloyd, and this is a true story, and it was in Esquire magazine. Uh, Somebody told me this after the service. Read the story, he says it's phenomenal. But they're in the subway and everybody in the car starts singing "Will you be my friend?" when they saw him. It is so moving, it's incredible. And I'm one of these anti-emotional guys with movies because I just don't like to be manipulated. But he imitated Christ. He did it. He fought his old nature. He put it to death. He chose humility. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. And then I watched a carload full of people lift him up. And they just said, he promotes the kind of world I want to live in. Mr. Rogers points to the kind of eternity that we're going to live in. There will be no pride. Will we choose humility or do we need to be taken there? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the day and for bright sunshine, and uh, we're going to need rest this afternoon, Lord, because we lost that hour. We thank you for the change in seasons. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints here this morning. We praise you for a testimony from a sister who was ushered into heaven and who saw the glories like the Apostle Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12. That will be for those who are in Christ. We thank you for the biblical record that pride is what got the whole mess going, and Lucifer was his name. We know the rest of the story, Lord, from Genesis 3 and then in your word, the scriptures, but we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you, Lord God, our Lord God, came in the form of a man and you chose to humble yourself and to serve us. And so we honor you for that. We just pray for more and more of your spirit that we would be like Mr. Rogers and that we would choose into being humble and being the people that you want us to be. So Lord, we love you and we honor you. May we honor you even more, not just with our words, but with our lives and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs)